satisfaction. Many people of this world, including myself, seek it. Some spend their entire lives pursuing it. Some look to the things of this world to experience it. More love, more acceptance, more appreciation, more money, more things, more comfort, more pleasure, more ease, more recognition, more power, more security. But we know in our hearts and from human experience, what this world offers can't ultimately give us lasting satisfaction. Read the stories of those who once seemingly held the world in their hands. Those who seem to have everything, yet their lives end up in tragedy. One such famous unfortunate example is that of Elvis Presley. And of course, we can go down a list of famous celebrities who have experienced similar fates. Elvis Presley was known as one of the most significant cultural icons of the 20th century, also known as the king of rock and roll. It seemed in his day he was taking the world by storm, grossing an estimated $100 million, which is approximately uh, equivalent to $900 million today, in just his first two years of stardom. But his life, in actuality, was a pitiful pursuit of materialism and sensuality. In one of his favorite cars, his 1960 Cadillac limousine, it said that the body of the car was sprayed with 40 coats of specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds and fish scales. Nearly all the metal trim was plated with 18 karat gold. Inside the car, there were golden flaked telephones, a gold vanity case containing a gold electric razor, and gold hair clippers in case you needed an emergency haircut, I guess, in the car, an electric shoe buffer, a gold plated television. It's written that Elvis had an unquenchable appetite for food, drugs, guns, and women, and he lived it out lavishly. It seemed he had everything and got anything he wanted. But the reality is those who knew him closest would reveal that Elvis had very much become a victim of his own appetites. They saw his gradual decline and eventually saw how his appetites got the best of him. At age 42, he was found comatose in his bathroom from a heart attack, most likely because of his addiction to drugs and his unhealthy lifestyle. And he would be found dead later that night in the hospital. This is why those who experienced similar fleeting pleasures of this world knows and sings the Rolling Stones anthem. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. No amount of pleasures, no luxuries, no comforts, no human being, no thing on earth can satisfy the hungry and thirsty soul, plain and clear. Maybe you're thinking those people are crazy. They're stupid for going too overboard. They need to be measured. They need to be controlled. They need to be more calculated and sensible. But it seems even those who pursue greatness the right way experience and express a similar dissatisfaction in this life, causing us to question whether the answer, the solution that all humani humanity throughout all history have been seeking can be actually found here on earth. Search on Google how to be satisfied in life and you'll find a list of things you'll need to do. Number one, focus on the positive. Number two, find your stress relief. Number three, don't be afraid to take time for yourself. Number four, take responsibility for your actions. Number five, be more understanding. Number six, reevaluate your relationships. Number seven, and this is my favorite one, live your best life. It all has to do with doing better, trying harder, reaching for the unattainable. Works, works, works. Simply, the great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek happiness and seek satisfaction, 
the world never seems to be able to find it. Well, today's verse from the Beatitudes is the answer and the solution to one of humanity's greatest quandaries. Is happiness possible? Is true satisfaction possible? Scripture says yes, but not from within, not from this world, not from trying harder, not from getting more, not from doing better. Our verse gives us an entirely different solution, that satisfaction comes from God. True happiness is found only in Jesus. We're continuing our study through the Beatitudes, which are the eight blessed sayings which make up the introductory verses of the most well-known sermon that Jesus, the greatest preacher himself, ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, in our series, Happy in Jesus. As I shared in the previous weeks, the purpose of these meditations for these eight weeks is that you and I would consider the heart, the mind, the outlook, and the values of a genuine Christian. Especially in these final days of the pandemic, Lord willing, as our church have been privileged to gather in person here at Capital Baptist Church's building and have been prayerfully waiting for these 10 months to move into southern Montgomery County, as the Lord is leading us finally to Rockville, Maryland, in these young and early months of our church, that we would consider what are the characteristics of Jesus' disciples? What are the qualities of kingdom citizens? As said, these beautiful attitudes of the kingdom are virtues not only for the spiritual elites and for super saints of the old and celebrity Christians of the present. These descriptions should mark every single follower of Jesus because these beatitudes are the reflections of Jesus' very heart. The Beatitudes collectively is the portrait of our Master and King, His very nature and character. And subsequently, they should be the traits we as His children should image and pursue. They are the distinctives in which we conform to more and more as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So as we have committed ourselves together as New Covenant Baptist Church, as the Lord will be leading us from exile to the promised land, Rockville, Maryland, my question for you, Uh, this afternoon is, are you happy in Jesus? Are you happy to be a part of this work at New Covenant Baptist Church? Are you eagerly, prayerfully preparing yourself for the Lord to use you to build up His church? If not, why not? What's keeping you from the present blessing and reward the Lord is offering to us through the Beatitudes? I pray you will examine your hearts and minds by these words, and I pray that the Lord will grant you much joy and peace, and thankfulness, and eagerness, and ownership, and energy as you partake in this endeavor with us together. As buttons on a shirt, there is a natural progression in the Beatitudes. In order to step into God's kingdom, you have to start with the first step. And the more and more we climb into these realities, the more humbling, the more searching, the more reliant on Jesus we have to be. The first step was to be poor in spirit, to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God that no one is righteous before God, that we have nothing in ourselves to offer to God to merit His mercy, that we don't deserve His grace, nor His blessing, nor His approval. In fact, we rightly deserve His wrath. That's why the second step is to mourn. Mourn over our sin, of our depraved, sin-sickened souls, and mourn over the sin of the world around us. We are to repent of our rebellion against God and confess our utter incapability to help ourselves much less save ourselves from ourselves and from our just judgment of from God in eternal hell, apart from the saving grace of God. And the reward of mourning is the immediate comfort through Jesus' finished work on the cross. We have forgiveness. It's also the future perfect endless comfort with Christ in heaven. 
The third beatitude was the blessing of the meek. Those who recognize their own spiritual emptiness, those who mourn over their sins, have a way of carrying themselves before others in gentleness, with self-awareness, in humble confidence. We don't try to flex before others what we have. We don't think too highly of ourselves because of what God has done in us. Therefore, our reward is the earth. We see the world for what it truly is, not more, not less. Broken, divided, wayward. But the inner peace granted by the confidence of hope in Christ allows us a rest. To live peaceably with ourselves and with others, we are able to bear others' burdens. We are able to mourn and rejoice with others. And in our confident hope in Christ, the meek can endure the injustices of today. The meek can overcome the trials and temptations of this day. The meek can persevere the sufferings of this life, looking forward to the day when the earth will be restored. And we as fellow heirs with Christ will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And today we approach the fourth beatitude. Our gaze can be lifted from ourselves toward God. Furthermore, our appetites, our needs, and our wants can be reoriented toward God because He offers us promises, the blessings, and the rewards that no thing on earth can provide. True and lasting joy and contentment, eternal and exceeding satisfaction. So again, uh, this week I want to share with you two promises of the Beatitude. Number one, the blessing of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and number two, the reward of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Read with me again Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The first promise of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is point number one, the blessing. Why are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness blessed? Why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness approved by God? Why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness happy in Jesus? Well, the answer comes naturally in the verse. The blessing is within the object of which they are pursuing. Righteousness is a worthy pursuit. Righteousness is a blessing in and of itself. Whereas everything else in this world is not, righteousness in this verse is worth hungering after. Righteousness is a blessed hunger. Well, what does our verse mean by righteousness? Thomas Watson, a 17th century Puritan preacher and author, in his work, The Beatitudes, explains there is a twofold righteousness explained in this verse. One, a righteousness of imputation, and two, a righteousness of implantation. Let me explain to you what they mean. When one rightly hungers and thirsts for righteousness, They are seeking a righteousness of imputation, namely, specifically, Christ righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So who is this he that this verse refers to? Of course, we know it's Jesus. Now you can see why this hungering, this thirsting is a blessed hungering and a blessed thirsting. Because the one who hungers and thirsts for Christ's righteousness is the one who recognizes their own moral ineptness. The one who mourns over sin. The one who is meek in nature, aware of his or her own state. Now the one who hungers and thirsts for Christ's righteousness knows that there is no righteousness upon which he or she can stand in him or in herself. 
the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for Christ's righteousness, all he or she has within him or herself is unrighteousness, and they are fully aware of that. Therefore, he or she desires an alien righteousness, an external righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. By virtue of Christ's righteousness, Numbers 23:21 says, God looks upon his people as if they have never even sinned. It says he considers no disaster for Jacob. He sees no trouble for Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and there is rejoicing over king among them. By virtue of Christ's righteousness, there is complete righteousness, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, And you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And Psalm 34, verse 9 says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. He who has this righteousness is equal to the most illustrious saints. The weakest believer is justified as much as the strongest. This is a Christian's triumph. This is the promised blessing for you and me, you see. Though we are defiled in ourselves, we are undefiled in our head in our Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones says the very essence of the Christian salvation is given us in this verse. He says it is a perfect statement of the doctrine of salvation by grace only. This is a unique blessing that is present and promised for the Christians, for you and me. No other religion can guarantee such blessing. No other religion can offer this free gift. The gift of imputed righteousness is the truth that we as sinners are declared righteous by God, purely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not based on our merits or our worthiness, but solely upon Christ's merits and worthiness. Hallelujah. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in fact the best news you will ever hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ that God created all things and created us in love for his own glory and for our happiness. But man, tempted by Satan, chose to be a God unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word, choosing death over life. As a result, we were separated from God, entirely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to forgive us and for us to know his great redeeming love by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. And he took our place as a substitute on the cross for our sins. He paid the debt no amount of sacrifice could ever pay, a payment we would have paid in eternal hell. Jesus paid it all by his sinless death and perfect sacrifice. He was dead. He was buried. The tomb was shut. They thought it was over. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that Christ defeated sin and death, which meant that the power of sin, death, and Satan was no more. And all who feel his invitation, the longing in our souls, the hungering and thirsting in the pits of our bowels is a sign that God hasn't given up on humanity. It's a wake-up call for humanity to look to him and to him alone. It's a call to you and me to not look at the things of the earth, but to rely on him alone. Friend, if you would repent over your sin and look to him, if you will trust him with your whole life, the promise of the gospel is that you will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the blessed life here on earth until he returns when you and I will be with him for all eternity. If you are not a Christian and you are here today, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for our Sunday gathering. But can I tell you, 
that there is a purpose in why you are here? Because Jesus is calling on you. His righteousness is gifted freely to you. So I want to urge you and encourage you, stop your searching, stop your seeking, stop your meandering. There is no answer out there, you see. There is no satisfaction anywhere else, nowhere else but in Christ alone. So repent of your sins today, which means to acknowledge your rebellion against Him. Turn from your unbelief. Ask Him to give you the faith. Believe that these words that I'm speaking right now are true. Uh, These words from the Bible are true that Jesus died and rose again for you. And trust Jesus with your whole life today. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please talk to me at the end of the service at the back door or speak to somebody smiling with their eyes next to you. I know for sure they'll be happy to talk to you uh, more about how to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of us who know the blessing of Christ's imputed righteousness, also hungers and thirst for a righteousness of implantation, as Thomas Watson explains. What I mean by implantation of righteousness is that a great desire, a hunger and a thirst is put into a man or a woman once he or she has experienced Christ's righteousness, God's uh, Christ's saving grace. It is the evidence of life that imputed righteousness is working properly in us. You see, because spiritual hunger follows the new spiritual birth, Do you get the logic? A dead man cannot hunger, for hunger proceeds from life. The first thing the child does when he or she is born is to hunger after milk. Well, how is that hunger experienced? How does a baby know that he or she is hungry? They feel the hunger pangs, and they are not satisfied with nothing else but milk. If the thirsty baby wants milk, don't give him water, don't give him juice, If the hungry man wants fried chicken, don't give him salad. Don't give him ice cream. Give the man his fried chicken. This is why Watson says, So a man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness says, Give me Christ or I die. What though I have parts, wealth, honor, and esteem in this world? All is nothing without Christ. Show me the Lord and it will suffice me. Let me have Christ to clothe me, Christ to feed me, Christ to intercede for me. While the soul is Christless, it is restless. Nothing but the water springs of Christ's blood can quench its thirst. Amen? Brother or sister, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness knows no earthly riches fill, no creature comforts quenches, no amount of accolades and accomplishments of the earth satisfies because there is no other justification that is fulfilling, no blessing as liberating or life-changing or life-giving or empowering or satisfying as the righteousness of Christ. Hence, the presence of this type of hunger and thirst is the true test of whether someone is truly a Christian or not. This is why, again, the blessing of The they, they only, it's an emphatic they. Uh, It's a blessing for those who are followers of Christ only. So let me ask you, have you experienced it? Do you sense that something is not right within you? Do you sense that something is not right within the world? Do you experience a lingering emptiness, a discontentment, a frustration, a sorrow, a longing of the soul? Well, that is Christ's invitation to you. That is Christ's invitation uh, for you to feed upon Him and drink of Him. 
This is why if you are hungry, Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. This is why if you're thirsty, Jesus says again in John chapter 4, verse 14, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This is the promise of God, brothers and sisters, as according to Psalm 107, verse 9, for he has satisfied the thirsty and will fill the hungry with good things. Amen? This is why Watson says, again, God sees it good sometimes to give us the sharp sauce of affliction to make us feed more hungrily upon the bread of life. The sauce of pain, the sauce of sorrow, the sauce of discontentment, the sauce of loneliness is what whets our appetite. It's the appetizer God is wetting your spiritual palate in order that you may come and feast upon his banqueting table, which we'll get to more in point number two. Brothers and sisters, before we move on, I want you to ask yourself, are you hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of Christ? If not, why not? There is something seriously wrong when a Christian doesn't hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, when a Christian doesn't hunger and thirst for Christ. So ask yourself, what has dulled the life flow in you? What is hindering your desire to pursue righteousness? If a hungry person doesn't eat, if a thirsty person doesn't drink, they wither and eventually die. So examine your hearts, brothers and sisters. As Watson says, again, Honey is not sweet to them that are sick of a fever and have their tongues embittered with color. So those who are soul sick and in the gall of bitterness find no sweetness in God or religion. Sin tastes sweeter to them. They have no spiritual hunger. Brothers and sisters, I pray if any Christian here have lost their appetite for righteousness, think upon Christ's righteousness you have been freely given. Embrace it wholly today and plead for him today to cut off whatever stifles your hungering and thirsting for him and beg him to fill you up this very moment. Christ's offer of righteousness shows us the inexcusableness of those who perish under the gospel. Watson says again, what apology can any man make at the day of judgment when God shall ask that question, friend, why did you not embrace Christ? I set Christ and grace at a low rate. If you had but hungered after righteousness, you might have had it, but you slighted Christ. You had such low thoughts of righteousness that you would not hunger after it. You see, the invitation the Lord calls us to in this verse is to continually hunger and thirst after Him. There is no excuse for lukewarmness, you see. There is no, I am too mature now or beyond this kind of hungering. This is not some fanatical hungering for those extreme zealous Christians, you see. The words hunger and thirst are actually, in the grammatical sense, are present active participles. Uh, It's the type of hungering that pictures an ongoing hungering, much like a deep craving that won't be satisfied until that thing is eaten. There is a growing increasing of this type of hungering and thirsting, a desperation, a starvation. As one commentator says, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in his heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. So what is worth this continuing, desperate starvation? 
Second promise of the Beatitude, point number two, the reward. The Beatitude is, of course, another mind-blowing paradox. It suggests that those who continually hunger are satisfied. Yet, how can one be hungry and satisfied at the same time? How can one be satisfied and experience hunger? Satisfied, but never satisfied. Full, yet empty. Content, but discontent. Again, the idea is an answer in itself. It's the blessing and the reward of the beatitude. The paradox describes a spiritual paradox. The more one conforms to God's will, the more fulfilled and content one becomes. Our hunger increases and intensifies in the very act of being satisfied. This is what Paul meant in Philippians 3.10, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul knew uh, Christ, but the intimacy and the satisfaction made him long for Christ even more, all the more. This is the promised reward of those who hunger and thirst for him. You see, Jesus is an infinite source of satisfaction for the present and for all eternity. Think about how Jesus is the source of our present action. Watson asks, why did Christ receive the Spirit without measure? It was not for himself. He was infinitely full before, but he was filled with holy unction for this end, that he might distill his grace upon the hungry soul. Are you ignorant? Christ was filled with wisdom that he might teach you. Are you polluted? Christ was filled with grace that he might cleanse you. Shall not the soul then come to Christ who was filled on purpose to fill the hungry? We love to knock at a rich man's door. In our Father's house there is bread enough. Come with desire and you shall go away with comfort. You shall have the virtues of Christ's blood, the influences of his spirit, the communication of his love. Will the Father of mercies let a poor soul that hungers after the blessing of the gospel go away without an alms of free grace? No, he will not. He cannot. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, this is the type of satisfaction in Jesus Christ we will have for all eternity. That's why heaven is not going to be a boring place. Heaven is the most satisfying place we can't even imagine, you see. When Christ returns and we will be with him, reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth, Luke twenty-two twenty-nine says, I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Revelation seven sixteen and 17, they will hunger no more nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. In my first year of seminary, straight out of college, uh, I had a lot of zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, it was a huge decision for me to go to seminary, which was equivalent to entering the monastery, if you will. It was a way I was committing to full-time ministry and never turning back. See, back in the day when when I had no category of healthy churches uh, who helps young, zealous pastor wannabes like me to discern our calling, uh, back then I just, you know, I had a desire to serve the Lord, so I went to seminary. But it was a very difficult process. As many of you know, I was sent to America by my non-Christian parents in Korea at the age of seven to achieve the American dream. 
And many years down the line, uh, as a senior year, senior in college, uh, I was wrestling with my desire and calling for pastoral ministry. And when I told my parents I wasn't going to law school, but going to seminary, uh, they basically disowned me. Well, given my financial situation and my international student status at the time, I can say my three and a half years at seminary was one of the most difficult times in my life. Full-time student, coming, uh, driving an hour and a half from Dallas to Fort Worth, tutoring three students to help pay off my undergraduate loans and paying for seminary at the same time, and also serving as a part-time children's pastor on the weekends at my uncle's church. Anyways, you can just say I was a seminarian with a whole lot of sauce. Well, in one of my classes at seminary, History of Spiritual Awakenings, I was learning about how at times in church history, God would send His Spirit, a movement of His Spirit, in particularly powerful ways and cause revivals and awakenings uh, to, uh, for entire cities and even entire countries. For a really helpful book in discerning true revivals from fake revivals, check out Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. Anyways, in this class, I was learning about a particular a revival in American history in, at Asbury College in the 70s, where a revival broke out at a, at a normal chapel service uh, that took place on Monday morning. And uh, here at the service, hundreds of students would come down, uh, confessing and mourning over their sins. And the service would uh, start to go on for hours and days uh, because people from the town would hear about it would come visit uh, where this uh, service is taking place and, and revival is taking place. And many of them, by the hundreds, would also be moved to confess their sins. And many, as a result, were converted and, and turning to, to God from their sins. And as a result of this season of revival, uh, the entire school experienced a, a revival awakening and, and the, the entire city, uh, which also impacted the country. As a result, many missionaries, evangelists, and pastors were raised up and sent out. Uh, they would say in those days, the presence of God was so thick that you could literally feel the presence of God on your face. Well, lo and behold, around the time I was taking this class and getting really excited about revivals in church history, our professor, one day in class, that there's, uh, shares the news that a mini-revival, similar to the one in the 70s, has broken out in Asbury College. So I went to seminary around 2005 to 2008. And uh, at this chapel service in Asbury College, a chapel service that started out on Monday was still going on, and it was Wednesday. Well, as a hungry, thirsty, overly zealous seminarian who desperately needed some encouragement from God, who wanted a blessing from God, who wanted to experience what I used to call a God bomb, a Damascus Road experience. You see, in my mind, I had taken uh, this bold step of faith for God to commit to full-time pastoral ministry. And as much as I was so sure of it, to everyone else, especially to my non-Christian parents, I wanted to be a pastor. I really wanted a greater, deeper assurance from God that I was, in fact, on the right track. Uh, because as I said, that season was one of the hardest seasons of my life. Well, even though I was a poor seminary student, I somehow managed in blind faith to purchase a, a $350 plane ticket and a, ho a hotel package to Wilmore, Kentucky on my credit card. And I wasn't sure how I was going to get from the airport to the hotel to the school because I was under 25 and wasn't able to rent a car yet, or at least would have had to pay a lot more money for it. Well, long story short, I got to the airport, and by God's miracle, they let me rent a car for $60. I drove straight to Asbury College, 
And as I stood there in front of those chapel doors, I could remember it clearly. I surely expected uh, to feel God's presence on my face. Either that, I would be blown away by a God bomb. I was so nervous. So I grabbed a hold of those two chapel doors, door handles, and I slowly opened the door. Well, what do you think happened? No God bomb. Not sure if I felt anything on my face, but I walked into a calm chapel hall where groups of people were praying and reading scripture all with each other. A bit disappointed, I found a spot in the chapel and prayed and read scripture. People came in and out throughout the day and throughout the night to continue to pray, share testimonies, and sing. And I can honestly say that it was a really good experience, a retreat of sorts. Around 12 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 a.m. or so, I went back to my hotel, slept, and next morning, early, I went back to the chapel hall. People, uh, groups of people were still praying. Students were, were still praying and reading and singing. And around 10 a.m. was the chapel service uh, for, the, for the school, of the school. Uh, it, was, it was a good service. And around noon, it was finally time for me to go back home. I had only enough, for, uh, enough money to rent the car for 24 hours. Well, on the drive back to the airport, I prayed to the Lord, Lord, you know my heart. I just want more of you. I want to know you more. I want to know that you'll use me. I want to know that I'm doing what you want me to do. Again, I was very young and somewhat misguided or more so I didn't really have many models uh, to lead me or teach me. Either that, I just didn't know how to reach out uh, and get some help. Well, I was disappointed, uh, to say the least, uh, that this trip wasn't what I expected. I sat by my gate, waiting for my flight uh, back home. But a few minutes passed, and an airline worker comes uh, through the speakers and announces uh, that the flight was overbooked, and they were asking for some volunteers to give up their seats. I I thought to myself, sure, why not? I'm not in a rush to get back home. So I walked up to the airline agent, And uh, what she does does for me is in addition to rescheduling me for another flight to return home a few hours later, she hands me a $400 flight voucher and a $10 meal ticket. Pleasantly surprised, I took the $10 meal ticket voucher to an airport restaurant nearby and I was enjoying a chicken sandwich. And here's the thing, as I was reflecting on my experience, my 24 hours of craziness, chasing after a revival, chasing after a God bomb, I naturally begin to do the math. $350 for the flight and one night stay at a hotel, plus $60 for the car rental equals, can you guess? $410. And here I was holding a $400 flight voucher and eating a free $10 meal. And then it came to me like a light bulb. It was as if God's voice was whispering to me. He was saying, not in a God bomb, not in a tangible experience or presence of God on my face, but in a still, gentle, but sure voice. I am with you. I'll provide for you. Just keep trusting me. Just keep following me. Well, that was a really long story, but I share it with you because it was such an impacting event for me personally. I hope you get my point. I'm not trying to promote some prosperity theology. 
I'm not even saying that $410 getting that money was you know, anything that was ultimately that significant. I'm not promoting chasing revivals. But where I was before so anxious and discouraged uh, and struggle city about my pastoral calling, this one word from the Lord, this one experience, I am with you. I am for you. Lifted up my soul. It was like an oasis that has bur- that bursted in my heart. And that chicken sandwich I can still remember to this day was the most deliciously satisfying sandwich I had ever eaten. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is a promised reward for those of us who trust in Christ to find satisfaction in Him, in the now, in the present, today, this moment. When you look to Him, when you call on Him, when you depend on Him. Hallelujah. I hear it too often from brothers and sisters. I've been having trouble. I've been struggling to read the Bible and to pray consistently. Well, brothers and sisters, stop your struggling today. If you are His child, child of our gracious and generous Lord, He invites you in this very moment to feast on Him. Jesus says in John 4.32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Romans 15.13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lloyd-Jones says, To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to do all and having done it, to realize that it is not enough, that it will never produce it. The people who hunger and thirst after righteousness are frantic. They do all these things. They are seeking righteousness everywhere, and yet they know that their efforts are never going to lead to it. They are like Bartimaeus or like the importune widow of whom our Lord spoke. They come back to the same person until they get it. They are like Jacob struggling with the angel. They are like Luther fasting, sweating, praying, not finding, but going on increasingly in his helplessness until God gives it to him. The same is true of all the saints of all ages and countries. It does not matter whom you look at. It seems to work like this. It is only as you seek this righteousness with the whole of your being that you can truly discover it. You can never find it yourself. Yet the people who sit back and do nothing never seem to get it. Close quote. So my question for you, brothers and sisters, this afternoon, is Jesus the greatest desire of your life? Is He, Jesus, the deepest longing of your being? It doesn't matter how your week has been, how your day has been, how your year has been. You have an open invitation. Look to Jesus this afternoon. Feast on Jesus today. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied with the fullness of God. Let's pray.